Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. We're going to take just a second to tell you about our new project, Audio Dime Museum. So Audio Dime Museum is a recent project of ours, and it's an experimental, historical, dramatic storytelling podcast. I've had a lot of people talking about this, and it gets us really excited. One of our reviewers states, The episodes are a great mix of mystery, history, and fantastic storytelling. From Between Two Earbuds. Uh, Many people have described it as hypnotizing, leaving them with goosebumps and chills. So we get a little spooky. People are always interested to find out that the stories are true. We tell it in a dramatic way, but it is true. They're true stories. They're not just stories. (laughs) Exactly. So if you're interested in audio drama, interesting history. Goosebumps. Then check out Audio Dime Museum. We've cut together a little preview of some of our early episodes, and we'll be coming to the conclusion of Volume 1 soon, so I'm going to jump on board to find out what the curator has in store for you. In the Audio Dime Museum. Some people are brought here to our devilish little mystery. We keep lots of little mysteries. Everything here has a story. Every little thing. You have to contemplate the idea that you might die. That others might die by your hand. Because blue and gray men with guns and anger and commanders with presence and honor are marching toward one another and you're in the middle of it. They started by cheating at bridge and they ended by murdering a young boy named Bobby Franks because they believed that he could get away with it. And you keep seeing that woman. No, women. It must be two. Even though they say the same thing. You made me do this. You do see the ship now. With scraps of fabric on deck. Giving to the breeze. And with a few more strokes of the oars. You realize they are scraps. Not of canvas. could swear you hear his voice, stern and convicted. Swear you feel a presence. Hello and welcome back to the 135 lecture series. In this lecture, we're going to talk about the bystander effect. All right. So week six, lecture five, bystander interference. Um, Really, a lot of the thought about bystander interference and a lot of the research was spawned by a case of Kitty Genovese. In 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was attacked in her housing estate in New York, just yards outside her home. She was murdered in front of an apartment building, and there were a lot of people that watched her be murdered and didn't necessarily do anything about it. Lights went on in in the windows around the courtyard, so we know that people were seeing this. Nobody called the police. The attack on her continued for over half an hour at 3 a.m. in the morning until Kitty was eventually murdered. During the attack, apartment lights turned on and 38 regular people witnessed the murder. How could this happen? 
are human beings really so cold and heartless that nobody cared enough to call the police? It doesn't. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus. My dad to go to Dallas. For One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran a, when I was little, my dad, a man came out of the Hi, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And before we get started in our story, we do want to take a second to thank everyone that's been leaving comments and reaching out to us on Twitter. You know, we really appreciate all this love we've been getting. We've been getting lots of love. It's kind of going to our heads. We walk around the house going, we so fancy. <laughs> yeah, we've had Allison Warminger on Twitter reaching out to us. Someone going by Turd. We love you too. We love you, Turd. We love lots of turds in this house, actually. That's true. History Goes Bump has come to our aid once again, reviewing Audio Dime Museum for us. You've got James Burton. And also, Haunterby left a very thorough and well-written review. For- yeah, and so we still have a little bit of time to our 25th episode, and that's when we'll be giving away our Pause Go Read It Pride. Pause. Go read it, prize will be sent to whoever emerges from the magical hat of mystery. We're going to put the names in and do a drawing. That would be anybody that reaches out to us, a review, Twitter, email, writing limericks, anything fun like that. Carrier pigeons. So, Sam, back to the story at hand. Are we not just going to talk about how awesome we are for like an hour? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, I'm tapped out. I'm not. <laughs> no. This is something that we've always talked about, and until recently, it never came up as an idea to do on the show, until it's hit a lot of press in the last year or two. We're unwittingly topical, maybe? So we're going to talk about Kitty Genovese. Kitty Genovese, for those that don't know, has become a legend in its own right for what the story stands for. And if you've ever taken a Psych 101 class... Or sociology. This might ring a bell. It should ring bells. If not, you need to pull out your study guides, go talk to your professors, and ask them why they did not indoctrinate you with this theory. So this story came up in my Psych 101 class. Came up in my Psych 101 class. And I am a compulsive caller of 911 because of the story. I am the most annoying person in the world to take a road trip with. If I see a car on the side of the road, I will call it in. If someone drives past me going 100 miles an hour, I will call it in. If I see a person wandering the street without shoes crying, I will call it in. I'm obnoxious. And this is as a direct result of hearing this story while I was doing my undergrad. So this is a story that's very old. It's from the 60s. Is that very old? Ish. Okay. Sorry, over 50 listeners. <laughs> well, it was wildly popular at the time. And it was had, a crime of the century. Yeah, it had a great effect on things, as we'll discuss. And it first gained popularity in a New York Times article. It is the original article that is cited by anyone who's going to use this case as a case study to do research or introducing teenagers and early adults to crime and their responsibility as human beings. New York Times article was published two weeks after the crime took place. And we're going to hit some of the high points of that article for you so that you will have the background on the case that everyone in social sciences seems to have. So it was written by a reporter working for A.M. Rosenthal, who was the Metro editor at the time. 
He was a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter that had been working his way up the chain of command and he would eventually become the head of the New York Times through like the Watergate scandal and all that stuff. So he had some serious bona fides. So the headline for this article written by Martin Gansberg on March 27th, 1964, bore the headline, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. <gasps> so you would not have been in that 37. No, those were despicable human beings, right? Well, in the next line, they say, For more than half an hour, 38, mm, I'm seeing some discrepancies here. Are you seeing some discrepancies here? Right off the bat. Yep, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched the killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick N. Lesson said, As we have reconstructed the crime, the assailant had three chances to kill the woman during a 35-minute period. He returned twice to complete the job. If we'd been called when he first attacked, the woman might not be dead now. And then in true dramatic effect, the story continues. Windows slid open and voices punctured the early morning stillness. Miss Genevieve screamed, Oh my God! He stabbed me! Please help me! Please help me! From one of the upper windows in the apartment house, a man called down, Let that girl alone. The assailant looked up at him, shrugged, and walked down Austin Street toward a white sedan parked a short distance away as Miss Genevieve struggled to her feet. And then the assailant returned wearing a hat, that's a thing, a fedora, and stabbed her again. I'm dying, she shrieked. I'm dying, she shrieked. I'm dying. And then... The neighbor, a 70-year-old woman, and another woman were the only persons on the street. Nobody else came forward. One witness sheepishly told the police, I didn't want to get involved. The police stressed how simple it would have been to have gotten in touch with him. A phone call, said one, would have done it. The police may be reached by dialing zero for the operator or SP ring 731. Zero, zero. There's no legal responsibility, with a few exceptions, for any citizen to report a crime. And then he goes on to be quite condescending and really compromises journalistic integrity, as he says. A housewife, knowingly, if quite casually, said, We thought it was a lover's quarrel. A husband and wife both said, Frankly, we were afraid. They seemed aware of the fact of what the events might have been. It's really like taking some leaps. Yeah. It's like, oh, they knew. They totally knew he was going to murder her. It was murdery murder. And then with a final whammy. It was 425 when the ambulance arrived for the body of Miss Genovese. It then drove off. Then, a solemn police detective said, the people came out. It's like one head wriggling finger snap away from being like a girl fight. I don't know. <laughs> I think that it's interesting because this story has been told so many times in so many iterations. It was popular at the time, but it really has stuck around because it is in every psychology textbook. One thing I read said starting in the 80s in basic psych textbooks because it's an example of something called the bystander effect. Okay, so what is that? So the bystander effect is very interesting and its research into it was sparked by this case. So like people began to think that this is a phenomenon that might exist naturally within culture because of the Kitty Genovese case. 
Right. And so just a few years later, John Darley and Bib Latane in 1968 became interested in the topic because of this. And so they started experimenting on this because they were a psychologist. How does one experiment on this? So they would set up various cases to test people's response to a possible emergency situation. That sounds ethical. So through the research, they developed five characteristics that bystanders go through through the cognitive and behavioral process. It depended on a lot of different things, whether it was perceived as dangerous. For them to get involved exactly. or whether the person was in danger. Both. Okay. If perpetrators were present... Okay, so again, that comes down to, like, self-preservation. I'm not going to go break up the fight. The guy might kill me. Right, and then again, cost of the intervention. So if it would have to be, like, a physical thing, kind of like you said, self-preservation. The model has five different ideas, or it's like a thought process that one goes through whenever they see an incident, such as you're at home at night, and you hear someone yelling out, I've been stabbed. Okay, so this is basically your internal flowchart. Right, and so first you notice. You notice that something's happening. And then you interpret the situation. You know, what is going on? Is this an emergency? And then you develop, like, a degree of responsibility. And then there's a form of assistance. So if you decide to do something, what you do. And then implementing that action, actually doing it. Between four and five, you might have, like, I thought I should have called, but I wasn't sure. Right, you may not go through all these steps. right. And so first you notice, you notice that something's going on. So one of the studies they did, they had students in a room and they started having smoke coming through. Like oh no! <laughs> like there was a fire going on. So if you were alone, this poor undergraduate student <laughs> would very quickly notice that there was smoke. And be like, hey, uh, I think there might be a fire going on. But if they were put in groups with strangers, it took a lot longer for them to notice If you were alone, it might take just a few seconds to where students in a group could take up to 20 seconds to notice the smoke. You think it's like they're distracted by the other people or they don't want to be the first one to say it? Yeah, I think that's it. And so one of the reasons that's referenced to why you would do this would be that kind of polite and public. Okay, well, that's a big thing in the South. I'm betting for Southern students, it probably takes 40 seconds. Because there is that element of not wanting to be the one that notices it. And also that we're trained to not be the one that's like looking around as that being like a shifty and negative thing. So when you're Mm -hmm. with other people, you're not looking around the room. You're focusing on the task at hand, which they were filling out a a fake like questionnaire. We're also innately programmed to calibrate our responses by the response of others. So if everyone starts freaking out, you freak out too, just naturally. Definitely. And we'll talk about that in a second. It depends on who you're with and how they respond to things. And so the next step is interpreting. So you're saying, is this an emergency? Is this something that's bad that's going on? Fire, so, uh, smoke seems like pretty, pretty bad. I've so, seen Lost. In another case they set up, they had a man and a woman getting into a little scuffle. In one incident, they would have the woman say, get away from me. I don't know you. Mm-hmm. And then another time they'd have someone say, get away from me. I don't know why I married you. Yeah, I would not, even with my crazy need to call 911, I don't know if I would interrupt a married couple having a fight. Yeah, and that fits with the data. 65% of people went to intervene when it was the get away, I don't know you. Mm -hmm. 19% responded with the marital dispute. 
Yeah, we're very much taught to stay out of other families' business. And then the next is the degree of responsibility. Do you think this person deserves help? And also, if you think you can do anything about it. And so there's other research about altruism showing that we are much more likely to respond to somebody or to go to help somebody if they're like us. Like us how? They look like us or like we perceive them as being equal. We do a little victim blaming maybe if people don't look so much like us. They say we say like, oh, well, they got themselves into that situation or oh, they wouldn't want help from us. You know, it's harder. It's like it's harder to relate to them. Mm-hmm. It's easy to put yourself in that person's place. I guess this altruism research is not directly related, but it's an interesting idea. Right. And I think it fits here. Like we were saying, you know, like, can you do anything? Like, it's a medical emergency. You know, this, can you do something? No, I'm going to get, I'm going to go tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, honey. <laughs> go to sleep. you on that guy at the beach. Yeah. That happened. Yeah. And it's very Baywatch. <laughs> it was. I was like, hold this baby. <laughs> I'm going to CPR. And then the helicopter came and blew sand in your face. Well, the lifeguard was holding the umbrella as I was doing CPR and starting an IV. But anyway. <laughs> just, a, just a little heroism. So the next step is the form of assistance. So you can have a, a what's called a detour, and that would be calling 911. I'm big on the calling 911. No, they know me there. You were detouring. <laughs> uh, and the other one is obviously a direct. So you're going and doing something. I'm always afraid to do that. Like, I feel like my dad would be so mad at me if he knew I went and tried to break up a fight. (laughs) He'd be so disappointed. Well, the next step is implementing, so just doing it. So you would go and try to break up that fight. I wouldn't, though. I'm scared. Everyone's bigger than me. (laughs) And some other key components that go into this are ambiguity. We talked about, like, do they need help? Is this a real thing? Yeah, I'm always afraid, like, when I call for people that look a little crazy i'm like god i hope i don't get them in trouble you know like i'm I'm like oh god i hope they're not like carrying a ton of drugs and i get them arrested or whatever because i think they look like they need help but maybe they're just having a weird drug thing happen you know <laughs> i'm glad you're worried about the crackheads i am and somebody needs to be okay and another part is cohesiveness like we're talking about with the altruism stuff also what those established relationships are, especially related to the people you're with. So they would take different groups of people and they would say, okay, you're here with two strangers. Are you going to react? Not as much. As if you were with a group of friends or people you were close to, that group cohesiveness and the more people there are lend to you responding more readily. So if you know the group well, I guess it would depend on the dynamic within the group, but if you're with a group of people who feel that they should respond, you're more likely to respond. Right. And then Does also, it ha- is the inverse true? Like if well, you're with somebody who's like, I don't think we should call. Are yes, you more yeah. likely to ignore them? Oh, Definitely. Fine. And then also, can you relate to those people? Are you more like this person? That also plays into it. And then one of the big components that's really touted in all your Psych 101 cases is diffusion of responsibility. Oh, that's such a good note card word. <laughs> note card phrase. Diffusion of responsibility means eh, maybe somebody else will take care of it. Right. Oh, someone probably already called the police. Yeah. I hate when you call 911 and they're like, uh, we're getting lots of calls right now about that. And I'm like, great. Good. That's great. Why are you telling me? <laughs> I want to scream, Kitty Genevieve, leave me alone. Keeping all that in mind, I wanted to look and see how people are taking this case 
and applying it in Psych 101. So I pulled up some study guides from Psych 101 or social psychology classes. Are you having flashbacks? Yeah, I was. Freshman year? <clears throat> A little bit. In this list of questions, there are things like, good moral judgment should be logical. Our relationship with law enforcement could be best described by... The authors use the murder of Kitty Genovese to illustrate what? When ethical relativism is put into practice, it implies that. So this is one. And then there's another one. And it's titled Social Plus Friday Plus Instructions 101. And it says, watch this reenactment of the murder of Kitty Genovese. Oh, that sounds With a YouTube link. Good time, good time. Yeah. Despite that there were 38 witnesses... And the killing took 30 minutes. In fact, the assailant attacked her, left, and then came back and attacked her further. Only one person called a few minutes after the attack. The police and an ambulance arrived within two minutes of the phone call, but Ms. Genovese died. What reasons did the witnesses in the video give as to why they did not call the police while the attack was occurring? How could this have happened? Are New Yorkers, where the crime took place, just cold-hearted? What do social psychologists call this type of phenomenon, where people do not say anything despite that something bad may be happening? What may underlie the phenomenon, i.e., where people do not do anything despite that something bad may be happening? Name two factors which underlie this phenomenon and explain what role they may play in what happened to Miss Genovese. Are you tempted to think that something like what happened to Kitty Genovese in 1964 would never happen in our day and age? Think again. And then this one is Psych Lesson 1. Oh, so you're going right off the bat. Welcome to class. Here you go. So we'll need to process and interpret information and make connections between psychological concepts and theories. Apply an understanding to both familiar and new concepts. Apply factors to the Kitty Genovese case. Automatically, as soon as you're like learning how to psych and apply them to this case. And this case is so interesting and is so in the zeitgeist of our culture. No, it absolutely is. I feel like something like 60% of Americans would recognize this name. I think to really look at the story and why it's important, we should look at the person that really pushed it. Oh yeah, he definitely pushed it. Yeah, and that's A.M. Rosenthal. Yes, good old Abe. Honest Abe. (laughs) He seems to feel a great deal of ownership over this article, even though he wasn't the author. Yeah, but some people say he may have written parts of it. Added some flourishes, yeah. Well, when he submitted the article to the Pulitzer Committee, he did include his name on the byline along with Martin's. So... so no, not that much of a leap. No. But he did quickly, as the story was gaining such popularity, get a book out real quick. Yeah, I know he's a journalist, but I was really impressed with how quickly he turned this one around. So his book, 38 Witnesses... You can find. It is on Scribd and uh, Amazon Prime, I think. The most interesting part of it to me is what he writes about how it has affected the general public. No, he definitely thinks that he changed the world. So in the revised introductions, this is in a republishing of it. This was from 1999. He states, there's the tale of Catherine Genovese, a revelation about the human condition so appalling to contemplate that only good can come from forcing oneself to confront the truth. There must be some connection between the story of the witness silent in the face of greater crimes, the degradation of race, children hungering, 
he felt this stood for like a profoundly disturbing sociological trend. And it's a brand new thing. It's never happened before. I don't even think that that's true. I think that you can look back and see this ever since there have been people in cities. But maybe that's just me. And that's a 1999 edition. He went on to say some things that I found rather disturbing. And I'm going to read that to you now just because I don't know that I can paraphrase it well. Even now, I do not know a great deal more about her life. Her life was not the reason I wrote about her or that millions of people came to know her name and have never forgotten it. And that for more than three decades, she has affected my life and my work, which for most journalists are pretty much the same thing. I was interested only in the manner of her dying. She died in the early hours of March 13th on 1964 outside the small apartment in Queens where she lived. As neighbors heard her scream, her last half hour away, and did nothing, nothing at all to give her sucker or even cry alarm. So it's so obvious that he knows that he turned this into just a story. It's a, it's a legend. He created a moral tale. A parable. Yes, he really did. And he's not even interested in finding out about the real story. All he's worried about is the sociologic effects. Yes, absolutely. I find it sort of disturbing that you can plaster someone's name all over your own agenda that way. And I really do think that's what he did. I think he had an agenda. He wanted to make change in New York City, call attention to things that were happening. At that time, there's a lot of tension. And I think that he felt like he had discovered a really great metaphor for it. And that was his agenda. So he plasters her name all over his agenda and doesn't take the time to make her a human being to himself or to the readers of his paper. So much was left out of this story. I mean, it's ridiculous. If you take the time to find out a little bit more about what actually happened, it's a really interesting story. Interesting feels wrong, but it is. It disturbing? Becomes, yeah, it's a much more disturbing story. And it's amazing to see what was left out. Yeah. But I guess I should start with, who was Kitty Genovese? She was a 29-year-old bartender. She was also the manager of the bar, which is never mentioned. It makes it sound like she's just there serving drinks. But yeah, she's like a very independent woman that did all the financing, took care of the bar. Made enough to support herself pretty handsomely. And she lived away from her family. Her parents begged her to move back in with them, but she wasn't interested in doing that. She loved the city. And they, when they moved to the suburb, she's like, I'm going to stay here. I can take care of myself. Right. They white-flighted. To yeah. Connecticut. But As she you do. had to be in the city. And so she d decided to stay. And she was very happy and, by all accounts, really enjoyed her job and really enjoyed her life with her love interest. Yeah, an interesting point that's left out is that she was a lesbian. In the 60s. Holy cow. Yeah, which at that time it was completely and totally illegal to be any sort of homosexual. <gasps> Gasp. And, I mean, you could be arrested for that. This isn't like some interesting theory that we've developed in hindsight. She actually lived with her partner, Marianne Zelnico, for a year before her death. And the two women were involved. They were not out, but I think everybody kind of knew that her roommate was a little more than her roommate. Well, they were out to their friends. Yes. They had a good community of friends in the village and some in Queens that, you know, knew about their lifestyle choices but it was not something that could be public because of the stigma against it 
Yeah, one of the great stories I love about her is that she also like took bets as she was a bartender. Mm-hmm. And she was actually arrested. Oops. <laughs> Oops. So, yes, here we have this woman, Kitty Genovese, who is not the ideal victim. See episode writing on the wall. She is a lesbian who lives with her lover and has a criminal record. Couldn't be more independent. Yeah. And was getting home late after working. <sighs> How did this ever get picked up? (laughs) But we bring up the kind of victim she is because this is not just a murder, which is something that I find interesting about the case. It was also a sexual assault. And that's glossed over a whole lot. Right. For some reason, that's completely left out. That's horrifying to me. This becomes, I don't know, something different. It's not about violence against women. It's not about, I don't know, it really bothers me that it's left out of her story because it happened to her. If we're going to talk about what happened to Kitty Genovese, that happened to her. Well, this is one of those really interesting, rare cases where the victim is known more than the perpetrator. Which, yay. For one. But it just goes to show that it's not about her or the crime. It's just labeled that way. It's about her and it's not about her. It's about the people who didn't call the police is what it's really about. So who was this person that did it? Well, his name was Winston Mosley. And that's another interesting thing that's left out. Winston was black and Kitty was white. I find it shocking that this was left out of that time period. Because in this time period in New York City, it was a tinderbox yeah. for racial problems. You know, there are the riots this time for an entire week after the New York police kill a young black boy, which hmm, yeah. sound familiar? Yeah, okay. Deja vu uh, and things. You know, this was the time of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. So that's something that's glossed over, which I think is interesting. It just shows you that there were strategic edits to the story that made it very palatable and allowed it to kind of go viral in the 1960s as much as things could go viral. And Winston Mosley himself was a very disturbing character. Yeah, I had no idea what I was getting into when I started researching Winston Mosley. I've not slept for a week. Thank you. So it serves the story... For him to sort of be a nameless, faceless assailant that comes out of nowhere that could be anyone. Definitely. That's the boogeyman that we're all afraid of lurking in the alleyway. Well, he was that. That's actually pretty accurate. He really was the thing lurking in the alleyway. Or in his car. Yeah. Because he followed her. Yeah. And parked behind her. Yeah. You know, we're scared of that too. But he was kind of maybe a serial killer. Yeah, he really fits a lot of the checkboxes. Well, he's yeah, he has more than two victims. He had a cooling off period. He had an M.O. So when he was taken into police custody after Kitty's murder, he was taken in because they saw him with some stolen goods. And he told the officer that stopped him that he was helping the people move that lived there. They called the police, interestingly enough. And so the police took him in and they kind of started questioning him. And then he just like rolls out this full confession. And then he's like, oh, and also, you know, on the 29th of February, how that woman died in Ozone Park and there was the fire. Yeah, that was me too. Her name was Annie Mae Johnson. She was a stay-at-home wife and mother. She was a young black lady who was about 24 years old at the time of her death. And he shot her six times 
before stuffing some fabric in her vagina and lighting it on fire, which is absolutely horrific. He also sodomized her after she was dead. I mean, just like horrific, horrific murder. But he confesses to this out of the blue, just like, oh yeah, by the way, I also did that. And then he is sitting there and one of the police detectives is like, I bet you probably killed that teenager too. And he's like, yeah, I did. And so that was Barbara Krolick. And she was 15, and she was killed in her home while her parents were asleep. Yeah, but if you look into the background of the character, he really fits a lot of those sociopathic serial killer mold, but also doesn't. He was married. Yes. He had two kids, but he did have that very classic problem of sexual impotence. Mm, That is a very classic serial killer problem. Yes, Winston Mosley definitely had some sexual frustration he was trying to work out. And when he began experiencing a lack of intimacy and impotence with his wife, he decided that she worked on Thursday night and it was only logical that he should probably, you know, go out and rape women because he was having this problem. It came out in trial when it was time for his sentencing, they allowed for testimony about the aggravating circumstances of his crimes, and four women came forward to testify that he had raped them. So this was not a new thing for Winston. But then he ultimately acknowledged to a doctor who was interviewing him that he really preferred sex with corpses. He never felt any satisfaction from raping a living woman. Wow. Yeah. He had his fair share of issues. Like I said, uh, Kitty was sexually assaulted. Maybe all three of the women were sexually assaulted with a knife. He was just an animal. It was awful what he did to those women. It's lost to history. The names of Barbara Krolick and Annie Mae Johnson are absolutely not associated with Kitty Genovese, and they suffered. Yeah, and then it's thought that some of the reasons that people weren't investigating those cases is that they were black. Yeah, and they already had a confession on the teenager's murder, which was another teenager that probably was coerced into confessing. We can't really say for sure. But that was causing some major problems for the police, and a lot of people think that that's why one of the higher-ups at the NYPD scheduled a lunch with Rosenthal, where he casually mentioned this thing about this case in Queens being something else. I mean, 38 witnesses and no one called the police. So at that point, when they're trying to kind of direct attention away from this double confession they've wound up with. That's when Rosenthal is given the seed of a great story, and he runs to the office and flags the first person there, and they're like, why did you choose Martin? And he's like, ah, because he was there. You know, like he just at random grabs someone and is like, go write this story. And then he rewrote it. Yeah. You know, a big part of this story is that there were changing number 38, 37 witnesses that didn't do anything. If you read the Times article, it makes it sound like everyone had their faces pressed against the glass, like fogging up their windows, watching this happen. Like, oh, look, look there. How interesting. But that's kind of not true. It's kind of not true at all. Yeah. Even in the article, the original article, it says that one person reached out trying to scare him away and stop him. Right. But he didn't do anything. He just, you know, yelled at the man who walked away. Yeah, which that actually did happen. Yeah, he yelled at the man. The man walked away. Kitty went inside, and everyone that had seen the original thing thought that it was done and that she was inside and safe and that the man had walked away. With the exception of one shifty, like, doorman who really was an asshole. Yeah. So that's Joseph Fink. Oh, what a great name. (laughs) Yeah, he sounds like a villain. He sounds like a, like, 
Ratfink. Yeah. And he was the kind of night manager of the building across the street. And he did hear it happen. Whenever, he saw it happen. Whenever the police questioned him, he was like, I thought about going get my bat and, and helping. But then I decided to go take a nap instead. So Joseph Fink is the face of urban apathy. We have one guy to thank. Thank you, Joseph Fink. But there were a lot of people that did try to help. You have Robert Moser, who is the guy that yelled out of his window. And later, Mosley testified that that action of someone yelling at him did frighten him away. That is what caused him to go away. Yeah, so he went away, and then he saw where his car was parked, and he was like, I should move my car. And so he went back and moved his car and apparently changed hats, I guess, so people wouldn't know it was him. He'd been wearing a ski cap earlier, and he went and put on a fedora. And then he came back, and he's like, I bet I could find her again. I'm going to go look for her. But from Moser's point of view, he couldn't see where Kitty went. She went around the back of another building and went inside. Yeah, he thought that he did He did it. Why would he keep trying to fix it if he thought he broke up the fight? Yeah, and then you also have Michael Hoffman, who was only 14 years old at the time. And he was in that same building as Moser. And he heard it. And he grabbed his dad. And his dad called the police. And he was on hold for several minutes. And he finally reached a police dispatcher. He said that a woman was, quote, got beat up and was staggering around and gave them the location. So that sounds like calling the police to me. I don't know what else you would call that. And this was actually, this came out years later when advocate for the Kew Gardens area was trying to round up testimony. And he found this man as an adult and he was actually a retired New York City police officer. And he gave a sworn statement that he'd done this. So this is very much on the record and from a pretty legitimate source. Then we have another kind of gray character. Yeah. And that's Ross, the dog groomer. Oh, Ross, the dog groomer. He was a drunk. And so he was kind of a drunk guy, and he was friends with Kitty. Yes, he took care of her poodle named Andrew that she and Marianne had adopted. He was in his apartment, heard the commotion, was worried about it, and then the commotion that he heard was the second act. So Kitty had staggered into a vestibule that was right outside of his apartment. Right down the stairs from it, yeah. And so he actually even opened the door and saw it happening. And he quickly closed the door. He was drunk off his ass at the time. Let's add that in. But even with that, even with him described just in everything I've read as a really kind of meek, anxious, nervous person, which what a terrible description of somebody. (laughs) That's your legacy. He did call a friend and was like, this is happening. What should we do? Eventually, they did call the police. Well, he... He was afraid to call the police from his apartment because he was afraid that the guy would hear him talking. And so he went across the rooftop, climbed across the rooftop, mm-hmm. went in through, went out through a window, climbed across the rooftop, entered someone else's home through a fire escape, and called the police from their home. Not, it's not passive. No, not something I would, he's always given these negative descriptions. And like, he did that. And like, what was he going to do? Walk out the front door into the middle of the attack? I don't know. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have wanted to go downstairs. I think that you could say, "Oh, why didn't he go and stop him?" But like, he did try to do something. Yeah, and he is the call that's eventually credited as being the call that gets the police to come. I don't know whatever happened to Hoffman's call. It's lost to history. It didn't work with story. It just was terrible. These two guys helped. I mean, that would not fit with this. Right. And there was also a French stewardess who called and got put on hold 
forever. And then she got nervous because she didn't speak English very well. And she was like, they're not going to understand me. I'm sure someone else is called and hangs up. But she made a call to the police. She actually did. And she testified about it in court. And then we even have someone that went out to help her. Yes. Sophie Farrar. Sophie Farrar is badass. She's um, all four foot eleven. Yeah. <laughs> That's whose apartment Ross went to. And once she found out what was happening, she came down and she actually held Kitty and tried to stop the bleeding and sat with her until the ambulance came. And when the ambulance came for her, this is another thing that this story just completely misrepresents. They say that it came to retrieve her body. That's not true. She died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. There were life-saving measures being taken. So I think she eventually died of a hemothorax, which is whenever you'd have a collection of blood build up in your lung cavity, your ribs, and collapse the lungs. I think the one thing we need to make sure everyone understands here is Kitty's not lying out in the street bleeding to death. She's inside. Nobody can see her except Carl Ross. And he does report to the other people in the building that this has happened. He gets help, and they go to try to help her after the violent person with a knife has left. Yeah, so that's urban apathy right there. Right, I mean, we we do have that element of there are a few bad characters. And, like, Carl Ross doesn't ever go downstairs to hold Kitty while she's dying. He stays in his apartment. Sophie's down there and she says, get me a towel. He won't come out of his apartment with it because he's scared to death. You know, like he's shocked. But he like holds the towel out to her and she comes and grabs it from him and tries to take it down there and stop Kitty's bleeding. Like he's not great. You know, he's not there patting her hand or anything, but he's he's doing the best he can at the moment. Right. I've seen patients faint when they have their finger pricked for a blood draw. Yeah. And these people are still trying to help while someone's bleeding out in front of their door. Yeah. I'm sorry, but there's a little courage there. I agree. Carl Ross wasn't called to testify in court because they were afraid that the jury would hate him because he didn't do enough. And I thought that was kind of amazing. That that was the reason that he was not called. The whole time I'm reading about him, I'm like, he didn't do everything, but he did something. Well, another reason they talk about not wanting to have too many of these people on the stand is that they wanted to make sure the jury felt that Mosley did it. That the reason she died was because of him and not because of the apathy of the other people around her. Because you know what? He did do it. If Mosley doesn't get out of his car, if he doesn't follow her home, this doesn't happen. And that's important to remember because that's, I think pretty glossed over in the accounts that are coming out as this is unfolding. Sometimes people do talk about the anxiety related to police, especially in this community and neighborhood. So what were some of the things that people talked about? Like, how did that come through? Some people talk about the anxiety because you would have a lot of police enforcing these sodomy laws. Oh, right. And so some of Kitty Genovese's friends, such as Ross, were homosexual. They had spent their entire adult lives being afraid of the police. The police barging in on a bar, arresting them for just being who they are. Yeah, and I mean, that to me, I don't mean it the way it's going to sound, but that's a crime. Like, that's so deplorable that this was the standard of living for this community of people. So you have this sort of natural apprehension, an adversarial relationship between 
members of this community and the police. And I don't think that Q Gardens necessarily had a great relationship with the cops. I think there was a lot of door knocking and like sort of a general mistrust. You know, like there, like you said, the atmosphere was not pleasant at this time. There was so much tension. Everyone was afraid John F. Kennedy had just been assassinated in the November of 1963. There was a great feeling of unease and. You know, right. the civil rights movement is going on and Vietnam is a thing and the Cuban Missile Crisis just passed. And everyone says that there was this feeling like you could die. You could die any time. There was just everything was so uncertain. The tumult of this era, I think, plays a large part in people's reluctance to trust authority. I love it in Kevin Cook's book. Which, which is, is so excellent. It's great. One of the great resources we used for this episode. Called- if you haven't read it. Yeah. Let's pause. Go read it. It's called Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America. And he described that feeling as like a chronic disease. And I think it had to be. It's such a great description. He's an excellent writer. I was very impressed with his prose. It's not just a true crime book. It's a very in-depth look at the people that surrounded Kitty and the time and area which she lived in. It's a true portrait of her life that makes her really come alive. So you can see that how this true crime, this actual terrible event, was completely turned into a story. It was. Some parts were left out. Some parts were glossed over. If you can diffuse responsibility, there is a huge diffusion of blame here. Oh, for sure. I mean, even like the I was saying, the prosecutors were worried that people would place blame on these nameless, faceless bystanders. The prototypical bystander of urban apathy. Right. And you do get those quotes. Like you get the one from Carl Ross where he's like, I didn't want to get involved. And I think what he means is I didn't want to get stabbed, but whatever. I'll let that go. But you also had that couple, the Crutchners, where the husband's like, I'm calling the police. And the wife's like, no, you don't. 30 people have probably already called. Right. That diffusion of responsibility. We don't need to get involved. That's so interesting. But I can see, I can see that playing out. I've been told they've probably got 30 calls already. When I'm calling to report whatever, it made you feel a little crazy if you're the one dialing 911. Kitty was a real person. She was this amazing, independent woman. Ahead of her time, man. And Mosley was a terrible monster. I mean, you really do have a hero and a villain in this story. And he is not just that random boogeyman lurking around the corner. He was a real person. And he confessed to the murder, as we stated... He confessed um, to all of it. There's some great trial transcripts, but the trial was not, is he guilty? And like, I'm a law and order way. It was to see if he was going to get the electric chair, good old Sparky. And old Sparky, FYI, is just the New York one. Like, that's not all over. That's a yeah. specific chair. Right. I just think it's interesting. Hey, you know who old Sparky killed? The Rosenbergs. Rosenbergs. Oh, God, that breaks my heart every time I think about it. And I know they're spies and they're evil and terrible, but, like, something about them. They're, because they were a family and they had kids, and I don't know. It really bothers me. You know that their children were eventually adopted by the Gershwins? Fun fact. For those who have been wondering for the last minute who the Rosenbergs were. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were spies. Terrible spies who gave away our... Nuclear secrets. Yeah, it was just kind of a big slip. To the Reds. Yeah. The Ruskies. Anyway, so the trial for Mosley was not to see if he did it or not. It was to see if he would get on Sparky or 
if he would be found not guilty by reason of insanity. But the idea that he could be acquitted was really never on the table. It was like whether he was going to be committed to a psychiatric facility for the rest of his life or go die in the chair. So that was an epic battle, it sounds like. His defense attorney, Sparrow, is touted as being incredibly proficient in really putting on a hell of a show and a hell of a defense. And he never for a moment considered the possibility that this guy was not going to take the rap for these crimes. I don't think that he would have felt it was an ethical move. I think he just felt he was insane, which he probably was. He's a pretty typical sociopath, and antisocial personality disorder and sociopathy are not grounds for an insanity defense. I did not know that. It's true, because pretty much everybody that kills lots of people has antisocial personality disorder, and that can't just be a symptom. Right, yeah, okay. But to me, he sort of typifies that profile a lot more than any other behavior. It seems like he has a compulsion. The rapes seem very compulsive to me. I think that the killings may be a byproduct of the rapes. Maybe more of a serial rapist than a serial killer. Yeah, Um, and if the FBI had a behavioral science at the time, they would have been all over this. Oh, yeah. Well, he was around. I'm sure you would have talked to him. But he wasn't technically classified as a serial killer because he was never convicted of the murders of Kralik and Johnson. Really? Yeah, only Kitty Genovese. Well, so he... Was not found insane, but his sentence was commuted to life. Well, (laughs) the jury sentenced him to death. Right. It was commuted to life. (laughs) Yeah. But because the judge, who was a staunch opponent of the death penalty, would not allow any experts to testify about Mosley's mental health at the sentencing, his sentence was later overturned. And people think that he did that on purpose. People think that he knew that the guy was going to get the death penalty, didn't want him to actually be put to death, and excluded that testimony to make sure that he could appeal for a retrial and not actually have to die. Interesting. Yeah. But Mosley's story does not end there. Oh, no. Now, in 1968, he decided that he was going to get out of prison. He'd had enough. So if you were going to try to get out of prison and you needed to go to the hospital... And you needed to do something to yourself that would be so urgent and so pressing, they would have no choice but to transfer you. But you didn't want to die. No, no, definitely not. What would you purchase from the commissary? Not a can of Spam. Which is what Mosley purchased from the commissary. So how does one go to the hospital with a can of Spam besides... The gastrointestinal issues that eating an entire can of Spam would probably cause. Well, you have to get the can inside of your body. Okay. It's not going in your ears. Mouth. No. Try again. I don't want to try again. He did. Uh, So mostly the intelligent man that he was. Which we didn't mention earlier. He did have a genius level IQ. He was very, very smart. Being a very smart man... He takes the can of Spam. I'm pretty sure the Spam was not in it at the time, though I've not actually read anything on that. But he takes the Spam receptacle, and he shoves it up his anus. Oh, good. Fully inserts it. Ow. Yeah. (laughs) And so when they discover that this has happened, they try to remove it at the prison, and they just don't have the technology to pull it off. I'm sorry. We need the specialist for this. They have you know, the knowledge, you know, but not the technology. You know, there are like entire blogs 
with like ER doctors posting x-rays of things they see on x-rays that people like swallow and place in their rectum. This is one for the blogs then because he's transported to a hospital off-site to have the spam can removed. What is that great Scrubs episode? You remember where there's the light bulb? I don't remember this. (laughs) He had a great idea. (laughs) So he's transferred. He has rectal surgery. They remove the rectangular spam can. I just like Google it if you don't know what spam is shaped like. Because this this just defies all spatial reasoning to me. But anyway, they remove it. And as they're bringing Mosley back to Attica, he somehow gets one of the officer's guns and gets out of the car and escapes. And I'm guessing after he escapes, he does not go dig up a buried treasure under a tree that Morgan Freeman told him about. No, there's no redemption. So basically what he does once he escapes from prison is set out on sort of composing a live-action thesis on the reasons that he needs to be in prison. This is not going to end well. No, he he rapes two women. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, he breaks into a house, ties the guy up, and ties the woman up. He proceeds to sexually assault the woman. He asks the guy to remove his clothes. The guy removes his clothes. He dresses himself. And goes and steals their car. And then he goes toward Niagara Falls. So in the Niagara Falls area in Buffalo. So he finds another family and essentially takes them hostage. He allows one of the women to leave if the other woman will stay. And she does. And he sexually assaults her. Before the FBI is brought in, he negotiates with one of the agents and is eventually taken back into custody and brought back to Attica. Thankfully. Thankfully. Where this story takes a crazy turn to me. Yeah. It was in 1977. Oh. Mosley decides that he is going to apply for parole. This just shows how out of his mind he was. Are you are you trying to get him off on insanity here? I don't want him off. He probably does need, like, long-term intense psychiatric care for the rest of his life. Or at least we put in, like, a test tube and studied. <laughs> but he actually wrote a Times op-ed piece. For the New York Times, correct? Yeah, stating that his misdeed had wound up making the world a better place. Quote, The crime was tragic, but it did serve society, urging it to come to the aid of its members in distress or danger. Yeah, I think this is the same article where he says that for the victim of a crime, the incident might last an hour or a minute, but for the person who is caught, it lasts forever. Poor Mosley. Can you even imagine formulating that argument and thinking like, this will fix it? Yeah, no sane person would say that. I could see being the New York Times editor and being, hell yes, we're going to run this. This is freaking nuts. <laughs> I can't do. I can't do. I totally would have run it. But like he says in the article that he's apologized to the Genovese family. And you know what? He hadn't. They stated that they had received no such apology. He wanted to apologize for the inconvenience he'd caused, which I th- thought was amazing phrasing. But they said that they'd received no such correspondence, nor did they wish to. 
And in reading about this case, I've sort of found their involvement or lack thereof to be very interesting. They didn't go to the trial. They never testified publicly. They didn't do any interviews. Kitty's siblings and her father actually worked together to shield their mother from press releases and information about the case. Well, so some of that might have had to do with family dynamics, but there actually is a new documentary out about her brother. So we have not had the opportunity to see this. We will be seeing it. We will pause and go see it. Because it's not available to us. It's currently on the independent film circuit. I mean, doing different festivals. But it is about her brother, who was young at the time. I think he was 16 at the time. And how he dealt with it. And him going through the case and interviewing people and trying to look at all the different aspects of it. I was able to read some articles about it and they discussed that he went to Vietnam because he did not want to be an innocent bystander. Oh my God, that's heartbreaking. Another heartbreaking thing. So they'd worked so hard to like make sure that their mom didn't read about the case anywhere. And when she died, they found a scrapbook of all the articles Oh my God, that is heartbreaking. She'd kept them, and she never talked to anyone about them. So while Mosley was absolutely insane, the notion that this case affected our everyday lives is actually true. Yeah, I know. I hate it. I hate it that he's even a little right. But it's good in a way for Kitty. Yes. There's like a silver lining on my so it's terrible. It's Kitty's legacy. One thing I am happy about is that if this is associated with anyone, it's associated with her. It's not like after Winston Mosley murdered that girl, this happened. It's very much like after Kitty Genovese's murder. Right. And so that's a positive. Thank you, Rosenthal. I think we can all say that that may have been his contribution. And he probably would have too. Oh, he definitely would have <laughs> so, so for starters... What number would people have been dialing? Our five-year-old knows that answer to what we call now. So now it's... 911, right? Like, and you just pick up any phone. If you have an iPhone, there's even an emergency call button. And you can, like, get straight through without a passcode because everyone needs to have access to this line of help, right? So this has always been that way since the beginning of phone calls. So at the time, it was very different. Oh, was it? Yeah, you have to, like... (laughs) Call a precinct that was in your area, and then you'd be on hold for a good bit of time, and then they might take your call, and and then it might get to the dispatcher, and it was a very inefficient system. And the way you'd know that number was not by Googling it. You would have to go grab your phone book. It's usually on the cover of your phone book, but you'd have to have access to a phone book, find the precinct's number, use your rotary telephone, call the precinct, sit on hold, whatever. Or you could dial zero for the operator who might transfer you to the wrong precinct, in which case you would have to hang up because they couldn't transfer you back, call the operator again, get her to transfer you, and you're on hold this entire time. So this is not going fast. So as a result of this case, a national number for emergency phone calls was implemented. Right, but okay, so that's definitely one positive thing. So what else? Um, Streetlights. Okay. Streetlights. Mayor Lindsay, who was in office after Kitty's murder, actually campaigned to have streetlights put up. And that's a true artifact of this crime. Direct result. Well, another thing that's cited as a result of this are Good Samaritan laws. Oh, yes, the end of Seinfeld. 
Seinfeld reference. We've Yay! made one forever. But that's something we study in medicine, and because it gives you the legal ability to help someone to the best of your ability without having any kind of legal action against you if you're not able to save them or help them. That's definitely a positive. So we can see that this terrible incident, this terrible murder of Kitty Genovese has become a story, has become a legend in its own right. It's told over and over again. The idea of it is told to new people, leaving the home, going to the big city. Uh, These things can happen. You don't want to know anybody there. No one will be there to help you. Right. I don't think it's an accident that we're usually exposed to this story for the first time in our freshman year in college. Right. We've seen that first lesson, Psych 101, freshman year, you've just moved out. You're going to your first class. You have your... Trapper keeper. You have your new computer. You have your university t-shirt on, which that's, that's how to spot a freshman, by the way. And you are immediately indoctrinated into this. Urban apathy. It's a thing. Yeah, and it was a big thing when we were in college. We've talked about it before at the time. The Baton Rouge serial killer, Derek Todd Lee. Was around our time, and it was a big thing when we were in school. Yeah, they definitely talked about, if you see something, say something. It was very much like airport security. Well, at the time, they were also making sure there were street lights everywhere on campus. They were putting call boxes up everywhere. Campus alerts after Virginia Tech definitely helped. We're constantly told how dangerous our environment is as soon as we get away from home. (laughs) But the idea of this kind of apathy does have some root in reality. It absolutely does. I mean, just listen to the way we were trying to justify, you know, Carl Ross not being a hero. Like, there's a great understanding. Like, if you take a moment and examine human nature, it's not difficult at all to understand where he was coming from. And that's because it's human nature. There are instances, even today, that supersede that basic instinct to keep yourself safe or react in shock or whatever that really do personify the non-reactive bystander. Right, and I think that could be most readily seen in social media. Yes. So just a few days ago, this story came out about this girl who was a senior in high school, and she and a friend had been drinking with an older guy. He was 27, basically like an old man. Thanks. Yeah. Her name is Mariana Lonina. She was there with her friend who was 17, a minor, and this guy that they were with began sexually assaulting her friend. So she takes out her phone, and what do you think she does with her phone? I would hope she would call 911. Well, she doesn't quite get that far. She manages to access the Periscope app. Which Periscope is a app that allows you to live stream a video feed. So she does this and points the camera at her friend who's being viciously assaulted by this man and live streams it while she asks people, oh my God, what should I do? What should I do? So disturbing. Right? And so the prosecutor in her first court appearance was just, just a few days ago says she just got caught up in the likes So I think this is interesting because, you know, the first evil that everyone cited was urban living because it puts a bunch of people together and it makes it easier to 
pass the buck to the next person. You know, you're not as responsible because somebody else, surely 30 people have called by now. Right. Your diffusion of responsibility. So now because of social media and our instant access to crowds, we can, even in a situation where we're alone and a crime's taking place, we can find a crowd. We can diffuse responsibility. She asked the people what she should do and no one said, call the police. Or if they did, she, you know, would, could have, couldn't stop her live stream in order to do so. But it, it gives you access to that feeling of diffused responsibility, even if you're the other party who is responsible. In a normal situation, you said the fewer people who witness a crime, the more likely they are to report it. She was alone with this girl and this guy, but she found a crowd. So with Kitty Genovese, a horrible tragedy was taken to really create the story of urban apathy. Through it, we were able to develop the idea of the bystander effect, that we're able to sit there and watch something happening because someone else might be doing something about it, or we don't relate to that person, or you know, we want to be too proper to deal with it. And even though that's not exactly what happened with Kitty Genovese, The idea is true. Right. And with this case, with this poor girl, that just occurred. Right. The poor girl being the victim. Right. You see this apathy is still alive and well. Yeah. Is the idea of the bystander effect just a story? Sure. It's just a story. 